it's a weird finding. It feels fundamental in this way that these two domains of music that you find everywhere that are very identifiable are completely the opposite. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw observed, though music be a universal language, it is spoken with all sorts of accents. Today, we're joined by Sam Mayer and Manbir Singh from Harvard University, who talk with us about their research suggesting that humans across the world are able to detect the social purpose of other cultures' songs based only on how they sound. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Sam Mayer and Manveer Singh. My name is Sam Mayer. Um, I direct the Music Lab at Harvard University in the Department of Psychology. Um, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, which is also where Harvard is. And I uh, went to high school in Lexington, Massachusetts, which is outside of Cambridge. Um, I went to college at the Eastman School of Music, where I studied music education um, and did a lot of work with uh, little kids and early childhood uh, music stuff. Um, and then I came to Harvard to work as a research assistant um, about nine years ago um, and kind of got really excited by working in science and got really interested in the science of music. Um, and then I went to grad school at Harvard, and now I'm here running a lab at Harvard. Yeah, so my name is Manvir Singh. I grew up in suburban New Jersey. I went to high school in suburban New Jersey. I went to college at Brown University. My degree is in human biology, evolution, and ecosystems, but I actually just studied evolution and focused on animal behavior and studied insect behavior. Then I spent a year in Copenhagen doing a comparative project with insects and humans and I got very excited about the capacity to use evolutionary theory to understand human behavior and to understand those things that are like especially weird and colorful and unique about humans. Uh, So when I came to graduate school, I focused on the things that I found the coolest, stuff like religion, music, law. In their study, Sam and Manvir's team investigated how songs' features or form relates to their social function. To do so, they first asked people to guess what songs' social purposes were by listening to short excerpts of vocal music that were collected throughout the world. Later, they asked a new group of people to do the same, but also instructed them to identify what features they could hear in the songs. We began our conversation by asking Manvir to explain how they carried this out. So this project is an examination of do songs that share functions around the world seem to exhibit convergent features? So songs that are used for the same thing, whether it be used for dancing or used to put an infant to sleep or used to heal someone, do they have similar both performative slash contextual features? So stuff like instrumentation or you know the gender of the people who sing them their their kind of behavioral or social context um but then do they also have similar musical features stuff like their tempo their melodic and rhythmic complexity so in one study we played these excerpts these random excerpts for people around the world and asked them to rate to what extent they 
thought each song was used for that function. And that kind of tells us, okay, are there perceptible features in these songs that, that people pick up on um, that recur in these in, in the songs of a given function that, that let people know, okay, yeah, this song is used for this thing. Uh, and then in experiment two, we tried to actually see what are the, the features that people are using to make these decisions. And then we tried to use some analyses to, to get at which features do people use in particular. So do they use the contextual features, these kind of performative features, or do they use the, the musical features? Do they use both? Is there something else that they're using? Uh, so yeah, those were the, the driving central questions of our, of our project. The song excerpts used in the study were drawn from the Natural History of Song Project, a systematic index of the signatures of vocal music from across the world. Here, Sam and Manbir explain how the Natural History of Song discography is organized and what the project aims to accomplish. The Natural History of Song is this collection of data from a bunch of different resources um, that includes ethnographic text describing musical behavior from lots of small-scale societies, um, and lots of annotations of that text, lots of kind of interpretations of what's going on when people read this stuff, and then also a bunch of field recordings in this discography. a bunch of data that are not in the current bio paper. So like musical transcriptions of the songs, uh, like tons and tons of ratings by expert musicians about like what's in the songs and all that stuff. So while we were spending years building natural history of song from scratch, um, one of the things that we always kind of wanted to do was just a really simple experiment, which was just to take these songs and play them to people and find out things about the songs that way. You know, we were a couple of years in and you know, we still haven't published like a big here's the natural history of song paper. Um, we're working on it still. But we had a thesis student who was working in Max Krasnow's lab, um, the evolutionary psychology lab uh, in the psych department here at Harvard. Um, and you know, he was interested in music and in a few different questions about sort of the evolutionary origins of music. Uh, and he ended up being very interested in this natural history of song um, database, which he was also involved in before he was a thesis student. This is the person I'm talking about is Hunter York, who's the middle author on the paper. And anyway, it ended up being kind of a really cool senior thesis project to just like do an exploratory thing, just like take some excerpts of these songs, figure out how easy or hard it is to play it to people on the internet and ask questions of them. Turns out to be very easy to do this. Um, I mean, very easy. There's like a few 
technical details that are a little annoying, but it's not, you know, in the grand scheme of running experiments in psychology, it's not that hard. So yeah, that was the pilot study. And then, you know, his, his thesis results were so interesting that we decided, you know, let's, while we're working on this big thing for all of the other data in NHS, let's, let's have an independent project from that. That's just like, here's some, you know, kind of a more souped up version of that thesis. The actual discography at the at the heart of it is composed of these recordings from eighty six small scale societies that we had to that sometimes we found in like pretty ancient locations. We, some of them we had to digitize from original tape reels. Others of them we had to email anthropologists. It was kind of a fun, weird treasure hunt where we stumbled upon, you know, a Hopi hoop song from 1924, uh, an Australian dance song from 1940. And I think the the actual data set, the discography at the heart of the study is is not only like a colorful, rare, cool thing, I think it like attests to and kind of exemplifies the the benefits that kind of universities have from keeping collections. I think it uh, is like a, a really humanizing part of this study. I think it's like a beautiful thing that a lot of people on the internet uh, have been able to engage with. And I think for Sam and myself, and this is something we've kind of talked about in a number of other interviews and conversations, it was both a source of enjoyment, but also a source of appreciation for the musical cultures of, of people and places around the world that... Uh, that like I, I don't think neither of us really expected to get and and has been really fun. Sam and Manvir were interested in learning if people could infer the social function of songs as being for dancing, to soothe a baby, to heal illness, or to express love for another person. Based solely on the song's features, Doug and I asked Manvir if a song's function can be thought of as its genre, with its form being how it sounds to a listener. That's a great way of characterizing it. The, the function, maybe rather than the genre, it's like, what are people using the song for? What, what is what are they hoping to get out of or what are they hoping to do when they sing the song? And the four functions we arrived at, it, it's a combination of things. One, in surveying the records and field recordings from all of these societies around the world, these were actually domains that we kind of just incidentally found pop up very, very frequently. Another is that several of these domains correspond with evolutionary theories, uh, 
like one shouldn't think about our paper or our data set as necessarily like having the testing of those theories as its objective, but there are um, kind of relevant theoretical backgrounds that, that make these song domains interesting. And just for the record, like we don't want to say that these are the four fundamental domains of music that you find in the world, or like these are the four only domains, or like these are the four universals. And so we're planning on expanding the data set to many more functions uh, to include things like play songs or, or dirges or celebratory songs, um, or even devotional songs, which from my perspective right now are probably distinct from shamanic healing songs. And then form. I think we describe as the behavioral features. Uh, and it's kind of anything a listener can pick up from a recording, but it's both the musical features, um, you know, classic stuff like tempo, but also more core stuff like how exciting is it? How how uh, happy does it sound? But also these kind of contextual things, like is it sung by males or females or do you sing it with instruments? So those kind of, all of those features combined, we think of as, the, the form, the, the acoustical thing that, that listeners are picking up on when they listen to these recordings. In their first experiment, 750 people across 60 countries listened to song excerpts drawn from the Natural History of Songs discography, then rated those songs functions. In their second experiment, people were additionally asked to assess 10 factors related to those songs' forms as well. Ryan and I followed up on Manbeer's explanation of form and function by asking Sam to tell us why they asked listeners to rate both the contextual features of songs as well as the musical ones. So the reason we wanted to um, at least differentiate between contextual things and musical things was basically to address a kind of deflationary account of the results. Um, so we're not we're not making any big claim about you know oh in the world lullabies have X Y Z contextual and musical features and and those are distinguishable from one another in the following way we're not making a claim like that basically you know the the, the one one of the kind of common responses to the first experiment um, and one that was brought up by the reviewers of the paper um, which is a legitimate one is is basically like how interesting is this result is this result like could we could we teach like a robot to make these distinctions on the basis of something not very interesting, like try to guess how many singers there are. And that informs your, you know, let's say 90% of the variance in your rating of whether or not the song is for a lullaby or, you know, whatever. So to us, we, we figure, okay, let's, let's see if we can get some data on what people hear in things that could reasonably be called contextual, like, you know, what's happening along with the song, like how many instruments are there, you know, something like it would be hard to call a musical feature of a song, the gender of the singer. It's like there is a singer and the singer has some properties, gender being one of them. Um, so that's kind of a contextual thing. Whereas musical features seem to be things that like, you know, wherever this song turned up, it would have the same feature. It's like the contextual feature could vary, like a man or a woman could sing this song while the musical feature of say tempo stayed constant. Like it's still a fast song, regardless of whether or not it's a man or woman singing it. Um, so we just try to distinguish between those to try and rule out this deflationary thing of like, oh, it's just how many singers there are, or whether or not there's an instrument. Um, and that's kind of one of the cool findings from the second experiment is basically like, yes, you can use the contextual features to make a lot of inferences, but you can also use independently of those features, the musical features, and independently of both of those, there's still something else that isn't really captured by those those variables that we use, you know, maybe as like performance style or, you know, 
something, some other musical feature that we didn't ask about or something like that. In the sense of there being a form of musical expression that can be intuited even by listeners who don't understand the language used in the song, Sam and Mangbeer's experiments suggest that universal links exist between form and function in vocal music. They talked with us next about what's important about this conclusion, as well as how their findings go beyond what has been found in previous studies. If there is a good reason to expect adaptive value for some form of music, a necessary uh, feature of human cognition for that theory is that that behavior should be universal. Um, It shouldn't just turn up everywhere. It should be used in the same way everywhere. It should have stereotyped features everywhere. Naive listeners should be able to identify it like like we showed in our paper. And when people are asking questions about universals in music, one of the things they are sort of inherently asking about is the relation between form and function in music. But because they're not are not typically, you know, evolutionary biologists, they might not know to call it that. Um, so that that's kind of one thing about the prior literature. The more general thing, and this is kind of the point we make in the paper, is that essentially what's out there about, you know, empirical approaches to music takes one of two forms. Either it's, you know, we went out into the world and we studied two or three cultures. We ran like a nice experiment with them. We showed that things were either similar or not similar. And therefore we make a big conclusion that things are universal or not universal. Uh, And the problem there obviously is that, you know, you're making an inference to a whole population of humans, uh, a whole species from a very limited sample of just, you know, two or three cultures. So that's problematic. But the nice thing about it is that because you're only studying a couple of cultures, because you're there on the ground, you get like a lot of really rich data about each culture. The other kind of data that's out there are like corpus studies of existing data sets. So this is like what Alan Lomax did in the 60s, where um, he took this uh, Cantometrics database, which is basically like a, a whole bunch of songs that were gathered from a bunch of different regions, but not really balanced in any kind of principled way ahead of time. Um, And that's really interesting because you get a ton and ton of music, um, but it's problematic because it's hard to say what population of music you're making inferences about from a sample that's not constructed in a principled fashion. And as a result, when when these results get published, they're always like heavily hedged. So the the title of that paper is is like statistical universals, which is like kind of like, okay, it's like, okay, well, so what does that really mean? You know? Um, But I I do also think like, so I think it is true that other people have looked at form, but I think the way that they've always thought about form and defined form has been just either kind of funky or they haven't really thought about it very much. So the major examples that I can think of are like Sam mentioned, this study that they did a couple of years ago, this Cantometrics 2.0, and, and they didn't even really think about form, which makes some of their inferences kind of odd. Like this, you know, 70% of songs are sung by men. But if, you know, if all of your songs are, for example, dance songs, or all of your songs are performative single person songs, then maybe you're telling us more about the social context of those kinds of domains. The other kinds of people who have looked at function have been like Alan Lomax thought about function, but again, thought about it in kind of a funky way where he really split his music into performative music that's sung by a single person and is complex and kind of groupish music, um, which I think is a cool and valid dichotomy or binary to consider. But we just took a, a very different and what turned out to be a much more fruitful way of thinking about function, which is just like, what are these people using this song for? And like, how does this relate to ways that people commonly divide and think about their music, like dance songs or lullabies? 
To measure listeners' confidence in their evaluation of each of the song's functions, Sam and Manveer use a six-point scale, ranging from definitely not being used for each of the various purposes, to it being definitely used for each of those purposes. Ryan and I wondered how they came up with this approach to measuring people's ability to determine song's social function and what the advantages of doing so are. One of the weaknesses of the pilot study um, of Hunter's thesis, or not really a weakness, but one of the issues that came up um, was that in that in that study, we didn't actually have anyone rate multiple functions for each song. Um, basically, they, they, they heard a song and then they had like a forced choice, like what kind of song is this? Here are your options kind of thing. And we kind of felt that that not only was that sort of limiting people to choosing only one thing for a particular song, which isn't like behaviorally accurate. People use the same kind of song for lots of different kinds of things. Um, and that's like a big issue in, in ethnomusicology is like, you know, there isn't any one category for any kind of thing. It's like you can use, you know, you can sing Hey Jude as a lullaby. You can sing Hey Jude as a dance song, you know, that kind of thing. But also we wanted to make sure that we were capturing lots and lots of variants on uh, these functions because in a lot of cases it's just really ambiguous. Like no one has any idea what the song is. They're just giving an intuition. So by stretching it out to a multiple point scale, um, that lets us kind of start to tap people's confidence a little bit. And while any one rating doesn't really tell us that much, when we look at the ratings kind of en masse across lots and lots, lots and lots of listeners and lots of repeated listens to each track, um, that gives us kind of a score for each song. So it's a bit more of a you might even call it like a like a test-based uh, measure rather than a categorization task. Another benefit that comes from the way that we did it. So like, let's say there's an alternative where the listener just has a drop-down menu and it's like, do you think this was used for dancing or healing or love or lullaby? There's a fear or a hesitation that the listener could just like immediately infer that, oh, all of these songs are one of these four types. And so by giving them these ratings and giving them uh, all of these mutually... Uh, non-exclusive ratings. And then also, if you noticed, we added in a couple other ones. How much do you think the song is used to mourn the dead? Or to what extent do you think this song is used to tell a story? Then it discourages the listener from figuring out or inferring or concluding that, oh, all of these songs fall into one of these four categories. To what extent does it just sound especially this, you know, especially dancey rather than these other three? And actually, there's one other advantage to it that, that uh, we haven't really talked about with people lately, but we, I remember we talked about it when we were kind of choosing how we were going to do this, um, which was, we don't know because this just hasn't been studied. We don't know what like the base rate is for danciness for music period. So in order to be able to compare like the danciness of dance songs relative to the danciness of other songs, we need just like an average value for like, okay, like, you know, on a scale of one to six, what is your like randomly selected song expected to fall at? Um, so, and what's cool about that is that an approach like this, you know, with, with, with multiple points is that the analysis can do a few different things. First, you can compare an actual song types rating on the corresponding function relative to other songs. So like how dancey is it relative to the base rate? You can compare other actual song types that are not the target one, like say how dancey are lullabies relative to the base rate. And there the answer is like, they're really not dancey at all. Like the whole distribution of lullabies is below average. Um, like our, our highest rated, our most dancey lullaby is, is like roughly at the average danciness of all songs. So yeah, it's, it, it makes for some more flexible analyses than we would be able to do with a bunch of like binary ratings. 
Sam and Manvir used a statistical technique called Principal Components Analysis, or PCA, to determine the number of factors that uniquely explain the relationship among the variables measured in the study. While the method doesn't name the factors, we asked how they would describe the two principal components that they identified. So yeah, we don't, in the discussion, we, we actually, we don't um, parse out differences in the uh, like explanatory value of each component so much, um, mostly because we're not, that's not really what we're trying to do in this paper. Like we're not, you know, like I said earlier, we're, we're, we're tr trying to treat these, the exploratory data as really exploratory and, and just see, you know, does it explain anything? The main distinction that we make in the discussion is between specific features that were coded. So these contextual features versus musical features. Uh, the two principal components are, are a reduction of just the musical features. And just as a, as a kind of fun side note, Sam mentioned how the first PC axis is um, danciness, but it also incidentally becomes like lullabyness because those are kind of total opposites. Like the more, you know, for for every way, every feature that that makes a song more dancey also makes a song less less of a lullaby. Like one of the cool findings of our second experiment is that lullabies and dance songs show completely opposing features on on uh, or completely opposing effects on on all of the features that we examined. It's a weird finding. It feels fundamental in this way that these two domains of music that you find everywhere that are very identifiable are completely the opposite in their features. It, it feels important for the evolution and design of music. Sam and Manvir used Amazon.com's Mechanical Turk, an online marketplace for requesting research participants. As several of our previous guests have used MTurk for similar purposes, we were interested in learning what their experience was in recruiting participants through the site. For people who listen to this podcast who use Turk, they probably are familiar with things like Turk Opticon, um, which is like a it's like a rating site for different Turk requesters. And there was some funny stuff on there. Um, there were we definitely had some feedback that was like, you know, you guys are jerks for making me listen to this much music. <laughs> like you said it was going to be music, but it was actually really scratchy, annoying recordings and that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> But by and large, so that but those were in the minority. By and large, we actually had a lot of really positive feedback. A lot of people who were, were like, "This was really fun." Normally on Turk, I have to do boring stuff. Like this was cool. I got to listen to music for a half hour. You know, so so yeah. In general, we got good feedback. But there were definitely some cranky Turkers who were not happy with you know some of the requirements. Doug and I were curious how it is that people from differing cultures are still able to discern the intent of one another's music. Manvir gives us his impressions on the question. One thing that I think a lot about with, with our study is the integration of kind of human evolved psychological biological substrates, the, the evolved kind of neurobi neurobiological substrate, and then how that maybe interacts with uh, cultural evolution to produce things that seem universal or things that are universal. So like in our case, we find that, you know, dance songs around the world and healing songs to some extent and lullabies show these convergent features. And a thing that a lot of people ask us, uh, and like when we talk about this study is like, what does this tell us about the evolution of music? And an answer that we say very often is like, it actually doesn't tell us so much. Um, it doesn't really allow us to, to say whether humans have evolved to make music. What it does kind of tell us is that humans around the world seem to respond very similarly to similar kinds of music. And so one option is that like 
human psychologies are geared in a similar way that, you know, they respond to music in a similar way. And that as they kind of selectively retain culture and choose culture and, and teach culture and pass it down and decide what music they're going to sing that night, they, they use the stuff that makes them want to dance or use the stuff that they've noticed makes infants fall asleep. And the consequence ultimately are these universal features. So there are two kind of opposing camps. One is that we have specifically evolved to produce these kinds of music to create these kind of effects. We have evolved to like dance and dance in a very particular way because that, for example, allows us to signal our coalition or that like allows us to be more socially bonded. And with that, we have a psychology that like knows how to make a very specific kind of sound to, to produce that kind of a behavior. Um, and those are these adaptive hypotheses, and they would kind of attribute universals in music to some extent to our evolved capacity to create and respond to them. Whereas like there are other camps that are more byproducty that say that human psychology has evolved for a number of kind of unrelated reasons, unrelated to actually producing and creating and listening to music, and that uh, our consistent responses to music are just kind of like incidental and fortuitous byproducts of that. And that music itself is is like a, a happy kind of auditory cheesecake or auditory pornography or kind of mind drug that has hacked those capabilities. The first experiment was pre-registered with the Center for Open Science as part of its pre-registration challenge, which rewards researchers with $1,000 if their study is accepted for publication by a participating journal. Since Ryan and I had previously interviewed social psychologist Brian Nosick, co-founder and director of the Center for Open Science, we were interested in learning of what Sam and Manbeer's thoughts were on pre-registration. Yeah, it was fine. I mean, we just we wrote up a, we wrote up what we were planning on doing, which is very common these days to do this ahead of time. Um, we submitted it uh, for review actually because um, we did the pre-registration challenge that OSF runs, um, so that we could get a little cash out of it. And you know, in cases like this where it's like there's it's totally reasonable to do it and there's no there's no downside i think it makes a lot of sense and in a lot of cases grad students work is like that you know where it's like we have a clear hypothesis we want to test it we want to make sure that we're not doing any funny business with our statistics we're going to lay it out ahead of time for that kind of thing i'm totally in support of it yeah i mean my short answer is it seems it seems like a great way to to ensure you know some degree of of pretty legitimate science uh and I think our experience of it was great, especially now that we're a thousand dollars richer. So yeah, apparent. I mean, apparently they're sending us. They just emailed me the other day. Apparently they're sending us some cash. So this is pretty low budget work. I mean, a thousand dollars covers like half of the cost of running it on Turk or something. I mean, not half, but like a good chunk of it. So yeah. Lastly, Doug and I wanted to learn what other recent developments in the study of psychology we might benefit from knowing more about. It, it's a really interesting time to be studying behavior. Um, and to be studying behavior across cultures because, like Mavir said, there's huge collections of data out there that haven't really been harnessed. So, you know, all of the libraries in the world contain lots and lots of information about behavior. And, you know, in Natural History of Song, we're making use of that in this kind of interesting new way. Uh, but we're not the only people doing that. There's lots and lots of projects that are starting to take basic methods from the behavioral sciences and applying them to cross-cultural work in really interesting ways. Um, so one of Mondrian's advisors, Joe Henrik, is, is famous for doing this. Um, you know, he coordinates these big studies that happen in many, many societies, and they, they get really interesting cross-cultural data that gives a different perspective on how the mind works than you might get if you were just, say, running a lab in, I don't know, Texas and getting Texans, right? So... I, yeah, I think the general thing is like not only is it is it 
is there a lot going on in the field about cultural questions that are sort of based in good hard science? But these are things that are starting to be applied to areas where they haven't been done very much or at all. Um, so in like understanding visual art in new ways or, you know, learning about really confusing behaviors like dance or like religion and that kind of thing. You know, things that are things that seem to be out of the reach of science are starting to become within reach. And that's that's really exciting. Yeah, it, it seems like a time when you describe projects to people, there are two simultaneous reactions, one of which is like, wait, we don't already have that? Like, Sam and I correspond very frequently with this guy, Quentin Atkinson, who is a part of all of these crazy projects where they, like, digitize and create databases out of, for example, characterizing the grammar of every single language in the world or, or characterizing um, the phonology the of all the languages. Or, language, or the yeah. word list, yeah, 250 words from every single language to create a phylogeny of how all of these languages are related. And at once you're like, whoa, that is a prodigious effort. And on the other hand, you're like, wait, we don't know. We don't know how all of these languages are related. Haven't people been working on this for like hundreds of years? And I think both of those responses have also been ways that people have reacted to our project, where on the one hand, they're like, wow, that's really, really cool. How did you find all these tracks? And on the other hand, they're like, wait, we don't know if like songs of the same function have convergent features. That seems so fundamental. And so in that way, you know, the list that Sam mentioned, religion, art, grammar, music, dance. It's, it's an exciting time where we're finally able to characterize the structure of these things. And also, as we learn more about psychology and, and evolution and how cultures change, we can figure out why these things are the way they are and why they show patterns and, and why they don't. So, so I think it's a very ripe and, and colorful and exciting time for these kinds of questions. That was Sam Mayer and Manvir Singh discussing their article, Form and Function in Human Song published on February 5th, 2018, with Hunter York, Luke Golaki, and Max Krasnow in the journal Current Biology. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials that they discussed during the show. If you've got a tip for parsing science, let us know that we should explore it. We'd love to hear from you, like we did from this caller. Hi, this is Mariah West Myers from Washington, D.C. Um, I wanted to let you know that I really like the Alice Gorman podcast on what was left behind on the moon. And I was going to suggest that you check out behavioralscientist.org for some ideas about uh, other science topics that uh, you might find of interest. Thanks. You can call us toll-free at 1-844-XPLORIT. That's 1-844-975-6748. Leave us a message and we might feature your call in a future show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Michael Krauss from Yale University's School of Management. He'll talk with us about his research into how voice-only communication might surpass facial expression with regard to the accuracy with which people assess the emotional intent of social interactions. We have to ask ourselves, what is the benefit of having, I don't know, something like a 2% return on our accuracy in reading others' emotions that happens across decades of a relationship. What would that mean? We hope that you'll join us again.